Now, I'm just going to make up the perfect story with the perfect beginning, the perfect end, the perfect middle. I can just kind of make it all up as I go because my job is to make stories and tell stories. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. This is Jesse Cox. He's one of the show's executive producers, and... Sometimes you have a week like we've had where there just haven't been any stories. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and audio memories we find all over the world. We listen to everything we can get our ears on, then bring you the best of what we hear each week. When I think of where I came from, born in a family that barely escaped the Holocaust, and then growing up with a learning disorder and living so many years in what a psychiatrist once called a fugue state, and graduating at the bottom of my class of 500 in high school, it's just astonishing that later I found refuge and sanctuary and fulfillment in radio. In our little corner of the world, inhabited by creative radio makers, the beginning of 2018 was a difficult time. We lost two brilliant producers in quick succession. One who died unexpectedly in the middle of a skyrocketing career, and another who died at the end of a long and illustrious, to say nothing of irreverent, life on the airwaves. Today on ReSound, a look back on the wonderful work of Australian producer Jesse Cox and the ingenious Joe Frank. The death of our friend Jesse Cox took us all by surprise, and many of us are still trying to catch up to this sad news. When we first came across Jesse's work, we knew right away that he was unique. Lighthearted, but absolutely serious, his positive energy and complete openness came through the radio as loudly as his voice. That's what we heard in his story, Keep Them Guessing, about the Piddingtons, his supposedly telepathic grandparents. And that's why we chose it for our 2013 Third Coast Director's Choice Award. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We present the Piddingtons. Good evening to you all, both at home and here in the number one Piccadilly studio right in the middle of the West End of London. When I first heard these recordings, I remember being fascinated by the sounds of my grandparents' voices. Just hearing them on these old tapes was pretty great. But I was completely captivated by what they were doing on the radio, because their program on the BBC was a mind-reading show. This is the voice of my grandfather, Sid. A large envelope will be taken down into the studio audience. Each show was made up of a series of mind-reading demonstrations. My grandfather is preparing for one now. It's all live, which is important. And he's asking the audience to place items in an envelope, which he'll then try to transmit to my grandma in a moment. Because we haven't got much time. Visualise a studio that sits over 150 people. At the front of the room is a small stage, and on it are big, old-fashioned microphones with BBC written on them. This is where my grandfather stands. He has a blackboard to one side of him, and he's joined on the stage by judges. 
These are famous people. I'm delighted to be here and I can't wait for it to begin, so I'm just going to sit around. Their role is to be your eyes and make sure nothing dodgy happens. Fox him. Meanwhile, my grandma is somewhere outside of the studio, in a taxi or a diving bell, once even the Tower of London. And in this tape, she's in an aeroplane flying around Bristol. Well, hello from a Boeing Stratocruiser, uh, high above England in a somewhat bumpy circumstance. This is the BBC announcer. We are here, a lot of press men, and we're under the heat of uh, movie reel cameras, and uh, I need hardly say stewards and stewardesses going about their deft and courteous business. I'm moving even further away from Leslie Piddington, and here is Jean Gordon, a stewardess. What did you do to Mrs. Piddington a few minutes ago? I searched her very thoroughly in spite of the cold. I made her take off everything. I looked in the padding of her jacket. I looked in her boots. I even looked in her mouth and her hair. And now I have her handbag, so I think you can be sure she's nothing hidden away anywhere on her person. Well, here we are still rocking about, and uh, back to you, Sydney in Piccadilly. Once they've done all of this, it's time to transmit what's been collected from the studio audience to my grandma in the aeroplane. Before you discount all of this as an elaborate hoax, you need to know that Leslie is surrounded by journalists. She doesn't have access to any headphones or any radio signal, and you never hear the correct answer until after Leslie has telepathically received the items. Something about food. It's a... a ration book. Some of the things have been cut out. If you concentrate on on the rations that have been left in. Milk, eggs, cheese, meat. That's all, I think. And that's verified by someone in the audience. One definitely was the Ministry of Food, the uh, ration card, exactly as she said, and I really must meet Mrs. Piddington. That was an excerpt from Keep Them Guessing by the late Jesse Cox, whose work we're celebrating as part of this hour. In 2014, Jesse Cox won a Third Coast Best Documentary Silver Award for his beautiful and sonically innovative The Real Tom Banks. We weren't the only ones who recognized Jesse's work. He was a recent winner of a Walkley, Australia's highest journalism award, and he helped create shows like Radio Tonic and This Is About at ABC Radio National. Heartbroken, his colleagues at ABC made this tribute called This Is About Jesse Cox. Hi, I'm Belinda Lopez. And I'm Jess Biniff. And this is about our friend Jesse Cox. He passed away. He had cancer. And he was 31 years old. But this episode is not about that. It's about stories. The really brilliant stories he told. You might not have heard Jesse's voice, but his fingerprints are on some of the most well-known podcasts around. In this episode, we're going to learn from him and hear some of his best stories. Let's start in 2012, when Jesse was still kind of new at this podcast thing. For years, he'd worked as a volunteer, pumping out a radio show every week while he worked jobs on the side. He was the executive producer and co-founder of FBI's All the Best, a storytelling show on community radio. He trained so many up-and-coming radio producers working today. And on this particular week, the show had a massive problem. This is Eliza Salos, co-founder and host of All the Best, starting the show. 
You're listening to All the Best, produced at FBI Radio in Sydney and broadcast to you across the community radio network. My name's Eliza Salos, and I have a bit of a confession to make. Yeah, we don't we don't have a show this week, Eliza. This is Jesse Cox. He's one of the show's executive producers, and... Sometimes you have a week like we've had where there just haven't been any stories. If you could see Jesse right now, he's, he's sitting in the studio. He's... You can hear him laughing at his, himself. It's, it is a bit of a ridiculous situation to be in when you produce a weekly radio show to not have a show to be able to bring to you this morning. Well, it's kind of what you live for each week. You, you're working towards, <laughs> you're working towards a, a 10 a.m. on a Saturday and, and you're making a radio program. And this week, well, we've kind of failed. We, we haven't made we it. We failed miserably. <laughs> But I've got a solution. I think I just give myself 24 hours to meet people and I just try and have a really, really interesting day tomorrow. Then I kind of feel like we might have a program by the time you hear this. Jesse, I think you should stop talking. Get out of here. Go go and get these stories. All right, I'm leaving. I'm, I'm off. Okay. Good morning, Miles. Good morning, Jesse. I can't think of a better way to start my day. <laughs> I think your enthusiasm has convinced me that this could perhaps be the best episode of all the best so far. Well, that, 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 that's optimistic. All right, come in. We'll have a cup of tea. We'll talk about what we're going to do. Oh, this, is, um, um, this is always what I say when I was, I was born in that room. Oh. So this is my first... You were born in this room? Yeah, my brother too. Both of us just in this room. My first impression is that it's really dark, but that's because the lights aren't on. I was born here. That's it. Jesse Cox made that show. He pulled it off in 24 hours. He was good like that. He took risks and he got done. And the thing people keep saying about Jesse this week is that he made them feel like things were possible. Big things. He made us feel like that too. The thing I keep thinking about is all this time sitting next to him at his desk when I was preparing to go and record other people's stories. I should have been recording him and all this wisdom that he had to share with us. We didn't record him enough, but we have dipped into the archives. And this is what we've got, him talking about storytelling. Now, I'm just going to make up the perfect story with the perfect beginning, the perfect end, the perfect middle. I can just kind of make it all up as I go. Because my job is to make stories and tell stories. When you do start... Hi. ...with an ounce of truth. Hi. Jesse Cox here. You start with a story which does have a bit of truth to it and then you work with them and stretch it into fiction and really blur those lines. What? You just listen to it and and it works? No, that's not right for that. It's almost dreamscape-like at times. Exposition. Exposition. Action. 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 Daniel. You're listening to Radiotonic on RN with me, Jesse Cox. Oh, yes. Radiotonic. I've heard of that. Jonathan Goldstein, thank you so much for joining me today on Radiotonic. Thank you. It's, It's been really great. Seriously, where is this guy? Hello. Hey, Jesse, it's Mike. Um, uh, just wondering... Sorry, sorry, the signal's really bad. we got five minutes. We're after the news. I've got, got long story short in five minutes. It's I, I, Mike. I can't hear you. I guess it's something about audio and sound, being able to find something that does affect you so viscerally. Everyone seems to be talking about podcasts and storytelling these days, and we've been discussing how producers are starting to forge what might be deemed a new Australian style or an Australian style that can sit next to the current Australian style. An even more perfect podcast companion for your commute, procrastination or weekly catch-up of great stories, documentaries, essays and dramas with a twist. (laughs) Hang on, hang on. Just (laughs) Reconfiguring the studio lines. Hello, good morning. Good morning, Jesse. Good morning. Hello, Tim. Yeah, you can hear me. How do you start a story? Here we are on the radio. It's an oral medium. 
we have been talking all about listening. So before we go, what is your perfect listening environment? Ooh, it's ah. One of the great things about listening, listening is really tuning in to your surrounds. There is something, I think, really special about the way the radio feature and the radio documentary can really bring something out of what might be hidden or, or unknown. Are you ready? Yeah, well, I, th- I hope so. I turn off the lights, get myself really relaxed. <laughs> this wonderful selection of sound and stories. <gasps> but this idea that you could actually compose with voice, you could play it like an instrument. Get out of my shop! Now, just finally... Oh. Uh, thank you, my extension is uh, 1347, if you um, ever need me to... Storytelling has always been one person around a campfire, around a kitchen table, telling a story. And on the radio, I think that's the medium that best evokes it, it best recreates that. And it's just this incredible place to imagine, to dream, to listen. And I think it's an incredibly powerful tool and something I'm really proud to be working on. It's a bit of a guilty pleasure. <laughs> I can't even say it. Day new more. Day new more. Hang in there. This will all make sense soon. Right from the start of his career, Jesse had really big ideas. He made documentaries, geolocative apps, sound installations. He set up radio programs all over the place. He was involved in way too many projects to list them all here. And recently he'd taken up a new job with Audible, overseeing original content for its Australian market. Jesse was always looking at the big picture, but he also loved to hone in on the nitty gritty of a great story. On This Is About, we all wanted to tell these really beautiful sounding stories that were also great journalism. In our production meetings, we had a code word for it. Avocados. We'd sit down, make a tea and talk about how we were going to make the next avocado story. Because avocado stories are nourishing. They're really good for you. They're also really delicious. They're the stories that we and so many of our friends in Australian radio want to make together. They're ambitious stories and we tried to make them because we believe that the most powerful journalism explains big truths through the lens of human experience. Jesse made us all believe that we could make avocados. There's an avocado he prepared earlier, before he'd even started on This Is About. It's called The Real Tom Banks. He won a Third Coast Award for it. Here he is talking to Dennis Funk after realising he couldn't make it to the award ceremony. Well, I said you can't be here at the, at the weekend. I heard you get married that night. I am, I am. I know, you know. I, we, did, we did consider our honeymoon to Third Coast, but thought that maybe that, that might be... be... Quite, <laughs> quite a special thing, wouldn't it? That'd be really cool. Life was good. Jessie had just married Q Min Lu, a wonderful storyteller in her own right. He told Dennis how he'd come to make the real Tom Banks. I met Tom as part of a development of an arts festival in Melbourne in Australia. I was doing a project, which was a live documentary theatre piece, and Tom bowled me up in the room in like one of the first days there and we just started chatting and very quickly he actually opened up to me. I didn't have to do that much to actually um, probe at all. He's an incredibly forthcoming person. So straight away I thought, oh, this is a really interesting guy. And the more I got to know him, the more I realised beneath that story was some really interesting parts of his life and interesting ideas that I wanted to dig further into. Presenting The Real Tom Banks by Jesse Cox. The the rare Tom Tom Thomas. 
Banks. The real Tom Banks. Do you want me to show you my profile? Hopeless romantic, smiley face. Hey guys, I'm Thomas. I wear my heart on my sleeve. But I love the phone. Unique, different, genuine. This guy's cute. Hi, I'm Brian. Brown hair, brown eyes, tan. I love the beach, but when I'm not surfing, I like to chill out at home in front of a good movie. The app's called Grinder, and it's really changed the way you meet guys. It uses GPS. You log in, and it knows where you are, and also where other guys who use it are. So if you're at a bar, or just walking down the street, it shows you who else is around so you can message them. It's like a gay beat anywhere, anytime. If it's for sex, we normally ask each other if we're, you know, um, up for it, and then exchange photos. But oh, grinder men are really fussy about that. Not so much me, but most men demand to see photos, like rude photos, before they even meet you. It's a bit gross, if I'm being honest. He's cute. Let's see if he's online. The first time I used Grinder, there was a sea of perfect men, and they all had beautiful, muscular bodies. There was something exciting about the idea of hooking up with a stranger. I was away for work. The first couple of guys I messaged didn't reply, but then this one guy sent me a message. He was really cute. He had short brown hair, dark eyes, which I liked. Um, Oh, he wore, wore glasses, and you could see he had really big muscles. But he looked gentle, too. He had a cheeky smile, and his profile said, City boy looking for a genuine guy. We agreed to meet in the hotel bar where I was staying. I was really nervous. I ordered a glass of Coke, and I, I sat there and waited. I saw him come through the sliding doors. I smiled and waved crazily at him, and he stopped for a moment. But he didn't move. He didn't smile. He just, he just, but he stood there with like a look of disappointment in his eyes. Then he started to walk outside. So I raced after him, but when I got to the street, he was gone. I probably should have told him I had a disability. Hello, welcome to Skype call testing service. After the beep, please record a message. Afterwards, your message will be played back to you. I am, I'm coming back. I'm Tom Banks. I am Tom Banks. Hi, I'm Thomas Banks. If you are able to hear your own voice, then you have configured Skype correctly. Thank you for using the testing service. Goodbye. (laughs) 
on the internet, no one judges me. Which is why I've always talked to people on the internet ever since I was four. 14, because there is no judgment, because no one knows about my disability. When I'm online, I don't tell the guys I chat with that I have cerebral palsy. Some people can be superficial, so if I told them, they wouldn't get to know me before they judge me. I started looking for a boyfriend when I was 16 years old. I sat in the Geelong Library for hours, trawling internet dating sites looking for a guy to spend the rest of my life with. I thought it would be the easiest way to find a boyfriend, but I discovered pretty quickly it wasn't a great way to meet people. I didn't have many friends when I was 16. I had friends when I was at school, but they never invited me out on the weekends to hang out with them. I live 50 minutes out of Geelong on a farm, so it was really hard for me to have much of a social life away from school. I was never invited to any of the teenage parties because no one wanted a cripple there, so I turned to the internet to take some of the loneliness away. I spoke with lots of guys in chat rooms. I don't remember if I told them I had a disability. But I could be whoever I wanted. Hi, I'm Tom. 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 What are you doing? Hopeless romantic. Hopeless romantic. Smiley face. Smiley face. I wear my heart on my sleeve. on my sleeve. But I love the phone. I love the phone. Unique. Unique. Different. Different. Genuine. 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 <laughs> the doctors thought I was going to die when I was born. I was the size of my dad's hand. The doctors at the hospital told my mum and dad that I'd never speak. At school, I had a lot of therapists visit me to help me walk and talk. First, I had to learn the sounds of different letters, then learn how to put them into words. My family could understand me a little bit, but other people couldn't. As I got older, I had to say longer sentences and it was harder for people to understand me. It's really frustrating as I know what I want to say, but I just can't get the words out of my mouth. When I was in grade six, I received my first light rider. Light writer. It's a machine that speaks for me. I type a message and then press a button, which translates my voice to speech. The ability to communicate and to be understood clearly is something which people take for granted each day. 
but I don't have the luxury to be understood easily. I know exactly what I want to say, but I just don't have the ability to, to articulate it in the right way. So listen to me to, to find out what I, what I need to die. It's sometimes really frustrating because people don't often have the patience to try and work out what I want to say to them. Some people ignore me in shops because they don't know how to communicate with someone who had a speech impairment. But then there are some people who are so confident that they'll fin finish that they'll finish my sentences while I'm in the middle of typing. Then there are some people who are curious to see how my light writer works, and they start using it without my permission, shit, writing shit, swear words and making it speak for their own entertainment. Poo 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 boobies shit 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 makes me really angry because, in a way, they are taking away my ability to be heard. Five foot five. Five feet Blue five. eyes. Blue eyes. Brown hair. Brown hair. Spiky haircut. Spiky haircut. Weight, 90 kilos. 90 kilos. Age, 23. 23. The cerebral palsy affects my body, so I have a slight limp, and it also affects my speech. Delete. 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 When I go on internet dates with guys, I don't tell them about my disability. They wouldn't want to meet me if they knew. I'm Tom Banks. Yeah, you're Tom. You're the perfect Tom. <laughs> Some guys wouldn't talk to me when I rocked up to their houses because of my disability. They didn't want to have sex with somebody whose body wasn't perfect. It made me angry and disappointed. They didn't give me a chance. It frustrates me because well, just because I have a disability, it doesn't mean that I don't want to have sex. I crave sex sometimes. It relaxes me. Sometimes people tell me they have someone else coming over or they need to leave to be somewhere. I've learned to live with it. But it's not a very nice feeling. Sometimes people call me a retard. Come on. Hello, you have a question for me? What do you say back? Oh, 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 wow. <laughs> if, if someone, someone starts, shuts the, shuts the door, door on my face, I will start banging on the door, banging on the door on and banging on the window until they let me in. Has that worked? No. <laughs> so why do you bang on the window? Maybe it will work. Maybe it will work? Do you wish sometimes that you didn't have a disability? No. No, because, because it, it could be. it's stupid. I was born with it. I was born it. with it. So, so I, I have, have nothing to, to compare it with. with. Do you feel like it would be easier with these men if you didn't have a disability? Yeah. Uh, whenever I'm at a sauna or meeting these people, I have a moment where I'm like, it would be 
so much easier if we could communicate better. But I died. But I can't, so I live with it. So I live with it. The gay sauna, a place where you go to hook up for sex. I sat outside on the bench for two years in front of the gay sauna underneath Flinders Street Station in Melbourne. I was scared to step inside as I didn't know if it was a safe place for someone with a disability. I used Ben as a fake name for two years when I finally did go in. I only used my real name when I came across guys who I felt comfortable with. There was a small part of me that hoped I would find a boyfriend at the sauna, but I gave up on that once I realised everyone was there just for sex. On my 22nd birthday, I decided to pay a sex worker. I had a friend who worked as a male escort, so I talked with him about paying him. I booked a cheap, dodgy room at a hotel in the middle of the city and then agreed to an 80 buck fee, which was really cheap considering he was used to earning 250 bucks a client. He arrived dressed in a suit with a bottle of red wine. I never thought I'd pay someone for sex. No one else in my family had done it. So I thought it was a bit immoral, but I was so sick of feeling rejected when guys looked at me in the sauna like I was an idiot. There was one point where no one would touch me. It felt odd having sex with him because I knew him before I paid him. He did stay that night in the hotel room, but he left straight after he woke up. I've looked for other sex workers, but I never hired any, even though it was really tempting. Do you think you're hiding behind the internet? <laughs> Sometimes. Do you imagine you were somebody else? Yeah. yeah. Who do you imagine? I have no idea. I have no idea. Um, um, well, I'm still me. Um, well, well I, I am still me. I was chatting to a guy. I was attracted to the cheeky photo on his profile. He had strong brown eyes and a bit of facial hair around his chin. He told me he had an English accent, which turned me on. We flirted for a bit, and then he asked if I wanted to come over to his house. I was waiting outside. It must have been close to midnight when the guy appeared. He was tall and skinny, just like in his profile photo. He stopped when he saw me. I hadn't told him about my disability. I didn't want to freak him out. We both said hello and there was a long, awkward silence. I knew I wanted to sleep with him, but he turned around and started walking back into the house. I reached out and touched him on the arm. He told me he couldn't do this, that he felt uncomfortable with the idea of having sex with me and that he didn't want to take advantage of me. So I moved closer to him and kissed him on the neck. I whispered, don't be scared. Let me in the house. He looked around then agreed to let me in. We sat on the couch for ten minutes, but then I started to gently rub his leg. I put myself on top of him, then I slid my hand underneath his shirt and he gently rubbed my back. Then I said, should we go to your room? And he nodded. 
I didn't think I was hiding how I was at the time. I just didn't want to tell guys I had a disability. I had this fear of people not wanting to meet me. I'd had experiences on internet dating sites where guys would block me when I told them I'd cerebral palsy. So then I made the decision not to tell people. I just turned up and then improvised when they saw me. It was a little bit more exciting because I never knew how people would react. It was fun. Just living on the edge, it's not up to me, it's up to them. But I had so many guys who slammed the door in my face. I'm Tom Banks. Hi, I'm Tom. Hi, I'm Tom. What are you doing? Last year, I was getting more frustrated with online dating, so I started telling people about my disability. I was proud of who I was, and I was determined to find a guy who wanted to be with me. I had a film made about me, so whenever I was on Grindr, I started to show people the video. I started talking to a guy in Geelong who worked as a nurse. He was really impressed with the video and wanted to meet up. We met for coffee, and yeah, we've been together now for... It's been about six months. It's the first time I've been in a proper relationship. I'm meeting his family in New Zealand. I, 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 I'm gone. <laughs> Hopeless romantic. Hopeless romantic. Unique. Unique. Different. Different. Genuine. Genuine. Smiley face. That was an excerpt from This Is About Jesse Cox, produced by Belinda Lopez and Jessica Binneth at the ABC. This excerpt featured Jesse Cox's Third Coast award-winning story, The Real Tom Banks. Jesse died on December 17, 2017, at the age of 31. You can learn more about Jesse and listen to other stories by him on our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. When I think of great moments in the history of radio, what comes to mind are the War of the Worlds. But we're not talking about great moments in radio. We're talking about my show. It's a daunting task to describe a man like Joe Frank in a few words, but these are a few that come to mind immediately. Iconoclast, maverick, dark, creative genius, and crazy man. From the first time he saddled up extremely closely to the microphone, he has pushed the boundaries. Once, he hauled a bathtub into the recording studio, dined on potato chips, and dialed a phone sex line while reclining in the water. For another story, he described a dinner party conversation between Pol Pot, Mao, and Hitler, arguing over the proper arrangements of flowers at a wedding. Harry Shearer once described Joe's work as a fist coming out of the radio. Third Coast has been a champion of Joe's work since our inception. In 2003, we gave him our Lifetime Achievement Award. So by the time you receive this award, you should have your affairs in order. And I want all of you to know that I 
have consulted an attorney, and uh, I've made all the appropriate arrangements. Because what does a Lifetime Achievement Award suggest about your future? <laughs> that everything you've done that was meaningful and worthwhile has been done. That people no longer expect anything from you. That you're no longer the go-to guy. But you're washed up, a has-been, that the curtain has come down and the man with the mustache and the overalls and the stump of an unlit cigar is pushing a broom across the stage. It's over. If I wanted to get a job in radio now, would I enter the office of the station manager clutching my Lifetime Achievement Award? <laughs> saying, I've got some fresh, cutting-edge ideas. I want to make new, groundbreaking radio. Joe's work, once you hear it, stays with you. It is unforgettable in the most literal sense. He started his career in 1977 when he walked through the doors of community radio station WBAI in New York, and within a year was hosting All Things Considered, which did not suit him. Eventually, he produced his own show out of KCRW in San Francisco called Joe Frank, Work in Progress, for which he won a Peabody Award. We think he would be tickled to know how much hot water we got into once for playing one of his stories on the air. It was during an on-air fundraiser on WBEZ. We played this story by Joe Frank, and, well, let's just say that it didn't go over very well. Here's Sweepstakes winner. Hello. Hi, I'm looking for Jenny. This is Jenny. Hi, Jenny. It's Matt Holzman calling from KCRW. Oh, hello. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for supporting KCRW. Thank you. I saw that you became an angel. You gave us a dollar a day. Yes. And uh, you took 3,500 frequent flyer miles on American Airlines? Yes. Is your premium. You're planning on going somewhere? Mm, yes. <laughs> but you're a first-time subscriber. I, I am. You've been listening for a while? Uh-huh. But you finally be decided to take the plunge and become yeah. a member. <laughs> what are the programs that you listen to the most? Oh, I love This American Life. And um, Selected Shorts. Oh, um, I have another call. Could you just hold on just for a minute? Yeah. Okay. Hello? Jenny? Yes? Uh... I'm sorry. You know... God! Oh, my God. 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 Oh, my God.
Uh-huh. Um, you know what? It sounds like a bad time. Maybe I'll call back in a bit. What do you want? Is, is this... A- this about her sister? No, no, no. Jenny subscribed to KCRW, and she won our Angel Sweepstakes to Hawaii. She won five nights at the Kapalua Bay Hotel, including an ocean view room and a complimentary scuba class, and Hoff, uh, Hoffman Travel is going to fly you both there. This is outrageous. How dare you call at a time like this? is absolutely obscene. We have, we have a tragedy in this family at this moment. Do you understand that? Yes, I'm... I... My sister-in-law has died. She's died, and there's a lot of confusion. I'm so sorry. I can't possibly deal with this kind of thing. Would you just shut up for a minute, please? Would you just put a sock in it, for God's sake? I'm dealing with somebody on the phone. We want a trip. I'm trying to work it out. After the funeral, maybe we'll go. Would, Would you shut up? I'm on the phone, for God's sake. You want it? Get... Hey, hold on. Just hold on one second. Just hold on one second. I'm telling you. I'm getting. I just stop. Shut up. You shut up. You shut up. I told you shut up. We want a trip somewhere, for God's sake. Are you still there? Yeah. Are you still there? Yes. Will you just hold on a minute, will you please? Yeah. You just hang on the line. Hey, listen to me. She was half gone in the first place. Your whole family's half gone. I'll just. Would you just give me one minute, please? Just one minute. Calm down. You're going to be all right. Yeah. Sir? Yeah. Is Jenny an employee of KCRW or Santa Monica College or or the Kapalua Bay Hotel or Hoffman Travel? No, no, not at all. Not at all. And and can we use some portion of this conversation on the air? I can't hear you. Can we use some portion of this conversation? Hey, would you just take it down and go back in the bathroom, for God's sake? I'm trying to get some info. I'm sorry. Please, excuse me. What would you say? Can we use some portion of this conversation on the air? Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, congratulations. Hey, thanks a lot. What do, uh, hey, can I ask you something? Sure. What, what do you, I mean, is there any kind of rerouting or rebooking this flight, you know, because we got to go out to the Midwest? Well, is that possible? Yeah, well, you can talk to the people at Hoffman Travel, and they might be able to help you out. All right. Okay. All right. You, great. Uh, hold on. Just one. Hey, hey. Would you please shut up? No! no! I told you a thousand times. I don't care about it. I never liked her anyway. She makes me sick. You're making me sick. I'm talking to this guy. We're going on. My God, we're going on a trip. We're going on a vacation. Sweepstakes winner by Joe Frank. You can probably imagine why some people thought it was inappropriate to play during a fundraiser. Joe Frank's work often appended the norm. Just when you think a rainbow is about to appear, you get a thundercloud. Happy endings turn into dark tunnels. Case in point, this essay he wrote about a dream that turns out to be a labyrinth. This story will twist and turn on you and leave you in a totally unexpected space. Here is Dreamers. He lived in a poor Arab village. The main street was an unpaved dirt road. Water was brought in by truck three times a week, from which his family filled their plastic jugs. And the electricity, which ran the TVs, the lights, and the fans, was provided by local generators powered by gasoline. His father had lost both legs to an artillery shell in the 1967 war. Now confined to a wheelchair, he was a devout Muslim who decried the existence of Israel. At the local mosque, 
he called for attacks on Israeli towns and cities and extolled the bravery of Hamas fighters willing to risk their lives by murdering Jews. On the hill above the village, a new Israeli settlement was being built. So far, only a few concrete buildings with fortifications, surveillance outposts, and a perimeter of barbed wire. One day, a Hamas recruiter came to his school to enlist children as suicide bombers. Wishing to avenge his father, he began training. They wanted him to approach the new Israeli settlement dressed as a Hasidic student and blow himself up at the guard post. They fitted him with a vest with eight sticks of dynamite around which were ball bearings and nails so that when he detonated the bomb, a cloud of shrapnel would explode outward, maiming and killing as many Israeli soldiers as possible. And so one morning, he found himself wearing a long black overcoat and a beaver hat, making his way up the road to the new settlement. He kept his eyes downcast and walked quickly, as though he was on an errand, when he heard a young Jewish soldier at the gate call out to him, Stop. Who are you? Where are you going? If you take one more step, I will be forced to shoot. His heart pounding and his body drenched with perspiration, he ignored the soldier's warning and continued moving forward, his thumb poised on the button that would detonate the bomb. When, suddenly, he woke up and realized he was not an Arab boy about to kill himself and murder others, but an Israeli soldier who'd fallen asleep at his post overlooking the very Arab village he just dreamt he was from. Born in the Orthodox Jewish community in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, he'd only recently come to Israel with his family. Now in the army, and no longer under the thumb of his strictly religious father, he had renounced his faith and become a secular Jew. The truth is that he had come to hate God. In his view, the deity was nothing more than a cruel and malicious old pervert. He imagined God pacing from room to room in his mansion in heaven, dreaming up new catastrophes on earth. African famine, genocide, and pandemic disease were deeply satisfying to him. But his greatest achievement remained the Nazi death camps of the 1940s. Nevertheless, the future was full of promise, with the proliferation of chemical, biological, and atomic weapons already being carried in the briefcases, backpacks, and heels of psychopathic religious killers. Yes, the future was rife with wonderfully hellish scenarios, and while God waited impatiently for them to unfold, he liked to keep things interesting with a plane crash, a forest fire, a ship lost at sea, a hostage crisis gone terribly wrong. If God were a resident on earth, he thought, he would be considered criminally insane. And now he was looking down the road at a young Hasidic student quickly approaching on foot, the same figure he'd imagined himself to be in his dream. And he called out, Stop! Who goes there? Who are you? Who are you visiting? What is your purpose? But the young Hasid didn't answer. And he called out again, If you do not stop, I will be forced to shoot. But even this warning did not deter the student, who continued to approach. And he called out again, One more step, and I will open fire. 
and the only thing that prevented him from doing so was his awareness of the existence of a deaf Hasid who lived in a nearby settlement, considered a saint on earth, one of Israel's most treasured scholars. From infancy, he'd been able to read the Talmud, and now, barely a teenager, he'd already written brilliant commentaries on Holy Scripture that raised profound questions rather than offer narrow, dogmatic answers. It was said that he was beyond religion. And so, either this deaf saint or a would-be suicide bomber wearing a kaftan and a beaver hat continued to approach, unresponsive to the young soldier's warnings. And soon he would be close enough to hurl a grenade and to press the button on an exploding vest to blow up a bunker, allowing a small army of Arab assassins to come in and destroy the settlement. Now approaching the checkpoint at this very moment was the pastor of a church in Willow Cross, Mississippi. He was riding with his family in their Ford Explorer. They'd spent that afternoon at the Israeli settlement as guests of the chief rabbi there, where the pastor had enjoyed a wonderfully stimulating conversation with their host on the question, to whom is the Holy Land more sacred? The pastor spoke of his respect for the Jews insofar as they were the original people of the book. But this land, he argued, was where God's only son had been brought to Bethlehem, where on Golgotha, Jesus had been crucified and resurrected three days later. This was where Jesus had walked among the people and preached and performed miracles, healing the sick, raising the dead, feeding the thousands with a single fish and a loaf of bread. This was where, at the Last Supper, he'd learned who would betray him and who would remain his disciples. So this was sacred and hallowed Christian ground. And now the pastor and his wife and son and daughter were riding down a road on their way out of the Israeli settlement, singing, My Bible for a Roadmap, when they saw the young Hasid trudging toward the guard post. And as they approached him, the pastor experienced a blinding flash, then profound silence for what seemed like an eternity, and then the ear-splitting thunder of an explosion. And he felt a rush of hurricane-like wind and could feel the car lifted high above the road and slowly spinning in the air in an arc through empty space. And his last thoughts were for his wife and two children when he woke up and realized he'd been dreaming. He was at home in Mississippi. It was one of those warm, balmy summer nights. He could hear the branches of the willow tree brushing against the side of the roof, the sound of a distant freight train, and a dog barking. The dream had been so terrifying that he found himself drenched with sweat, and yet, at the same time, felt chilled to the bone, his body trembling. He looked over and observed his wife sleeping. Then he saw the packed suitcases, the passports laid out on a table next to the American Express traveler's checks, and remembered they were about to fly to the Holy Land. He looked at the alarm clock, its glowing phosphorescent dial reading 510, and knew that in a few minutes the alarm would go off because they had to be at the airport by seven. 
He rose from his bed and walked down the hall to the children's room and looked in at his son and daughter, who were sleeping, his little girl hugging her doll, his son sucking his thumb, his new baseball mitt on the floor beside his bed. Then he went downstairs, poured two fingers of Jack Daniels into a water glass, and drank it down. And he walked out onto the porch and listened to the crickets and the wind rustling the leaves of the willow tree. And he could not help but feel that his dream was a foreshadowing of what was to come, a tragic vision of the future. His family was excited about going to Palestine. For his wife, a devout Christian, this was the trip of a lifetime. This was where she would be able to touch the very soil upon which Jesus had walked. Then he heard the alarm clock ring and saw a light go on in the upstairs bedroom, and then a dimmer light in the curtained hallway window, and then another light in the children's bedroom. And he heard the faint sound of a faucet being turned on, and the excited voices of his children, and a radio turned to bluegrass music. And he walked out onto the lawn, and knelt, and clasped his hands, and looked up at the star-filled sky, and asked God for guidance. But he heard nothing but the sound of the crickets, and the wind, and a distant freight train that was taking forever to pass. And seen from high above, the freight train was moving along a river, beyond which was a fenced-off field, in which horses were quietly standing and sleeping, and barns and outbuildings and fields of cotton, and a small town with a single main street leading to a courthouse square, with a monument of a Confederate soldier on a pedestal with the names of the dead from the town, and steepled churches, and single and two-lane blacktops feeding into a larger interstate with steady traffic, and then suburbs, and feeder roads, and shopping centers, and malls, and gas stations, and used car lots, and bridges over rivers leading into cities with their capital buildings, and business districts, and residential high-rises, and hospitals, and stadiums, and concert halls, their lights still twinkling as dawn was creeping over the horizon, and beyond that, enormous plains, and great forests, and huge river systems, leading to the foothills of purple mountains that ran north and south, and beyond that, the sparkling expanse of deep blue oceans, and the contours of Europe and Asia, where there was a light side and a dark side, as the globe turned in the sunlight. And seen from even higher above, and at a greater distance, the earth receding into a small stone in the firmament, and further back, our solar system disappearing into the Milky Way, and further back yet, into the darkness of the most profound silence imaginable, in the endless, the unknowable, and the infinity of time and space, without beginning or end. Dreamers, by Joe Frank, who died on January 15, 2018, at the age of 79. To listen to more of Joe's work or his full, hilarious acceptance speech for the Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Lifetime Achievement Award, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org.
Jesse Cox and Joe Frank leave deep holes in the radio landscape that can't be filled. When unique voices like theirs break through the static, it's impossible to quantify the influence they have on the producers who work with them and the makers who follow them. They will be sorely, sorely missed. We're all good, Charlie. Great. We'll we'll stop it. Um, Hope you can cut around the mumbles. (laughs) Yeah, see you later. Bye-bye. I remember being struck by the phrase, blasphemy is a prayer in reverse. Because the truth is that, as profane as my programs may have seemed to some, I have always been searching for the sacred. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Maya Goldberg-Safer. Isabel Vasquez is our production assistant. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. With so much to listen to and so little time, ReSound. All diamonds, no rough. <laughs>